Charlton Eric Adams had assembled, which it called Reminiscent of Fort Alliance. This article kind of makes the faux popular that so called zeal and quote unquote logic want tough on unlike This about Democratic Adams says Adams quote remind based on most of the party notably on major issues all of the showed that weighed much more heavily on the minds of left. So you have this narrative that not only was Evidence correlation that Igor Darish fails to argument against the ultimately cut just eight million dollars from the budget, the same number of fight nonstop fearmongering. Was largely critical. Only a dozen of the roughly eight. Many of the cities that did cut police budgets blamed revenue shortfalls caused by coronavirus rather than demonstrate. So when you compare the modest, and I mean very modest, increase, there is zero correlation. Zero correlation between Democrats. Obviously, the idea that criticism of defund or anti-defund or anti-defund backlash result of somehow or meaningfully reduce prisons. Is Remember how there was no police anymore, Adam, after last summer, and now went up. Yeah, it's a total fiction. I mean, the departments that increased budget, which most of them, number of those, of course, all. Increase in murder as well. So there is absolutely no connection between those two things. The only connection they can make is nebulous, demoralizing. The protesters like did in the sad, and they decided not to like pursue criminals. Yeah, they sort of sat in their car and ate donuts instead of because they can't show any connection. So they had to come up with this. So the actual. Yeah, and so this is very sort of typical of the argument. And so what you had is you had a very brief fundamentally public right I'm preventing going police what that would look like. A bit of a broke of the kind of ideological prosecutor for like five minutes or Nike, CNN, everyone sort of time warner. NBA, everyone suddenly decided they cared about this. About, you know, 
and then it was sort of okay. Let's just all this charity program, education funding. Like there's nothing to do. Making sure that Black Lives Matter. Some fucking bizarre reason. I guess we wanted to make sure the aliens didn't plug in. Once the mural quotient was hit, they went back to right. And everyone's including De Blasio just might be able to get away. Oh no no, we can have reform, but we're not gonna actually do in a sort of gesture towards reform. As Eric Adams to explain it, yeah, because Eric Adams still was Trump's and everything. A continent, but there's a reason why he got the New York and so now you have this murder rate going up. Democrats need can't really blame high murder rates on Republicans for going after on to on to Eric Adams shows. Never mind that Philadelphia Krasner. Forget all that. This one election proves that act. I love cops all the time. And of course, again, depends how you phrase the poll, but sometimes that's true. And there are lots of African Americans who like cops, who want cops, again, for options. The narrative cemented itself. There was an uptick in murder. We need to defund. I need to That was all dead in the water, over, gone too far. Classic example of like, they never had any power. I mean, this is just like, they did this like a lot of Bernie stuff. Bernie would campaign on Medicare for all. Then, like, he would lose, and then they, or they would lose their primary, and they say, this is evidence that that doesn't work. That never was policy. That never won anything. It was like, it was purely theoretical. Fund was purely theoretical. They never won an election. They never had any power. Socialism failed because we F as country in the global south. Proof that it does not work. Yeah, exactly. They're never given a chance to all these fund movements out in the clever accounting. Not really any substantive reform. Some measures, some the most part, they're exactly where we correlation meaningful stuff they're also going up that murder rates are up in cities without any bail reform which is the vast majority of cities I cannot stress this enough but they need to go after these modest reforms because not only for their own sake they need to nip it in the bud as well they need to nip any kind of reform an opportunity. Or the tough on cops. We're not pro defund. Oh, they blamed, by the way. No correlation there. It's no. a narrative. It has to be true. No matter what the fucking data says, it has to be the narrative. You want to talk to us about why that's not the case. Why movements are still worth defending, even though it's become unpopular. We will now be joined by Alec Karakatsak, founder and executive director of Civil Rights.
Alec was a civil rights lawyer and public defender for years in the District of Columbia and the State of Alabama and co-founded the organization Equal Justice Under the Law. The author of the book, Unusual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. You can follow him on Twitter at EqualityAlec. He'll join us in just a moment. Stay with us. Okay, I meant to start that a little bit later, but uh, we'll continue listening because I do feel like this is informative. So again, we're listening to Citations Needed Podcast, episode 142. And this came out on August 4th. And again, we'll post all of our links over on the website at org. How we sort of generally all other boards by change. Talk about it. Fine. Start of the very notion, quote unquote, crime is determined by powerful people, people who have power in societies across the world and throughout our own history here in this country have always changed the definition of what is criminal to suit their own interests. Classic example is it didn't used to be criminal to possess marijuana. The marijuana plant was not criminalized until it became useful for very powerful people to give police more discretion to arrest people. And that was associated with a desire by powerful people to give police more tools to track down, cage, arrest, and potentially deport Mexican-American immigrants. The same is true with opium. Powerful people decided to give this police the discretion to arrest people for possessing the opium substance to give them more power over Chinese-American immigrants. The same is true with cocaine and black Americans. Powerful people decided to make that criminal. It didn't used to be criminal. It was decided to be made criminal precisely so they could give police more discretion to surveil and track and arrest and cage and then profit off the labor of black Americans after the Civil War. The same concept is true across the concept of crime. So for example, wagering in the streets over dice is a crime. Who wagers in the streets over dice? Mostly poor people. But wagering over international currencies or the global supply of wheat, not a crime. In fact, people who wager on those things make billions of dollars and have their names on the wings of hospitals and museums. Or housing discrimination, it's not seen as a crime. Or sexual harassment at work, these are things that cause a lot of harm, but that our society has chosen to deal with in a civil context and not a criminal context. Another example might be campaign contributions. Some countries, and, and indeed different times in this country's history, you might consider the current political funding system as bribery, the crime of bribery. We have legalized it in this country. Invading foreign countries, drone strikes, 
refusing to offer medicine to people or insulin to people who need it. Those could all be considered crimes. At different times and places in our country's history, different things have been crimes, like refusing to give someone an abortion or giving someone an abortion or refusing to join a union or joining a union. I guess the first point I want to make is that so much of what we think of as criminal is actually just political choices made by people in power. I think a second topic we should talk about, though, is that of the things that are criminalized, the police only search for those crimes in some places some of the time. And the, the way they make decisions over where to look for those crimes is actually even more important. So, for example, wage theft is a crime. Wage theft costs about 50 to $100 billion a year. But who commits wage theft? It's wealthy, large employers, corporations. It's almost never enforced by any police department or prosecutor's office in the country, even though, by conservative estimates, it costs as much money and damage by about a factor of five as all robbery, burglary, larceny, shoplifting, all property crimes combined. And then tax evasion costs about a trillion dollars a year. This is a crime that's committed by wealthy people. It's 20 times the damage of wage theft and about 100 times the damage of all other property crime combined, almost never enforced. Sexual assault laws are almost never enforced while police gorge themselves on drug arrests, etc. Constantly, all over the country, they left hundreds of thousands of rape kits untested. I could go on and on. Fights in private schools, environmental pollution. There are several million environmental crimes committed every single year by companies and wealthy people in this country. They're never enforced. So I think we have to understand that background context before we have a conversation. All that's true. I think some listening may say, okay, prove your point. Such interesting. We've been talking about crime at the same time for an hour now. You've proved your point. You're all a bunch of high-in-the-sky, sort of far-left types, but murder is rather binary, either dead or alive. And that murder is not something that murder across cultures has typically been in the Ten Commandments, Hammurabi's Code, whatever. Sort of a thing that is universally seen as bad. And that murder is up, and murder's a lot. And that this spike of, some say, 25%, that, that this is fueling a, or rather, it's I think it's fair to say it is, is the fuel of a pre-existing narrative that's been around for years. Now there's a sort of statistical mm -hmm. reference point they can cling to to push back against George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, fund movement, abolishment, within the Democratic Party. Something we've been making pretty much the, the premise of this episode. Now, people getting shot in Chicago or Parkland, Florida, that is not a social conflict. That's reality. I want to sort of talk about this new liberal hand-wringing about blaming the rise in murder, not on a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, which seems like if we looked at the X factor here, but for the most part, New York Times, Vox, CNN, they're blaming it on modest bearable fears, despite as we talk about at the beginning. I want to talk about murder and the rise and what people are blaming that rise, how we've immediately skipped past messiness of stating how we can deal with that to just asserting that police are better. That your, your arch nemesis, Matt Iglesias, says police are better. German Lopez, police are better. Eric Levitz, police are better. I want to talk about that assumption, the current reactionary pushback fueled by murder to the Black Lives Matter. Well, I have first have to 
dispute that he's my arch nemesis. I feel like that, that <laughs> the word nemesis conveys that he's coming at me with some kind of um, actual substance and that I'm having trouble that, overcoming. That he's an actual threat. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's such a nonsense thinker, and so much of what he does is just so pathetic. I would hope he wouldn't be a nemesis. Wow. Not even worth your time. This is like the Raul Julia speech from Street Fighter. He's not even, he's, it was to you, it was a Tuesday, but go ahead. He, he's very much worth our time, though, but I don't want to be too flippant. I mean, sure, sure, he sure. communicates to millions of people every single day. And, he's and supposedly shapes the Biden administration's agenda, according to Politico. But go ahead. Yeah. Exactly. He's, he's out there spewing just total fabrications and nonsense. And a lot of people listen to him because he is really skirting the line between conventional wisdom and police propaganda very effectively. But I think this is this question about murder is so important. First, let me just say, we have a, a violent society. We have to acknowledge that. There's a lot of violence in our society every single day, not just murder, but our society is full of people harming each other. It's full of structural violence that leads to extraordinary and preventable death every single day. And the reason I do this work and the reason I care about this topic we're talking about right now is I think our society's response to this harm is fundamentally flawed exactly the way you suggested the question. So let me just first say, if policing made us safer, and if policing prevented murder, we'd be the safest country in the world. No society in modern recorded world history has ever spent so much money on policing. Cages, prosecutors, judges, right, and courts. It doesn't make us safer. It doesn't prevent murder. In fact, there is not a single shred of evidence. Increased expenditures on police prevent murder. The other thing that I, I want to suggest is that we should care about violence and death much more broadly than the narrow definition of murder that police are concerned with. First of all, police don't, when they're doing the murder stats, they don't count deaths in prison. They don't count deaths by police. They don't include those in the murder rates. And they also don't include all of the people that die from lack of health care, from environmental pollution, from home foreclosures. So when a bank fraudulently forecloses on a home or a landlord illegally kicks people out, we know that that actually is associated with huge increases in death. Deaths that actually dwarf the murder statistics that police rely on. And if we have a little bit of an expanded definition of preventable death, rather than the sort of very constrained definition of homicide that police departments report, I think we'd actually start to see a really different discussion about what are some of the solutions to that problem. But make no mistake, there has been increase this year in the number of police reported homicides. And I think it's important that we on the left actually talk about this issue and talk about why. Things like poverty and mental health care and gun sales and alienation in general from the things that connect us to other human beings, and lack of access to art and music and theater and poetry and sort of ways of youth connecting to each other. These are the things that the evidence shows are actually connected to violence. And they're precisely not the things that our society is actually spending billions and billions of dollars on in every single city around the country when we talk about the way that police spend their time. Keep in mind, Police only spend 4% of all of their time on what they themselves call violent crime. It's even less on murder. Police have almost nothing to do with that issue. When Eric Levitt somatically says the way criminology or the sociology is settled, because they don't just say it's like a contested thing. Eric Levitt says it's not a contestable thing. That more police reduces crime. By extension, I think they infer murder. What are they citing? What is that study and why is it bullshit? Because this is like now kind of taken for granted in circles and I really want to kind of explain why it shouldn't. I debunked this stuff last year in my piece in Current Affairs called Why Crime Isn't the Question and Police Aren't the Answer. But there are just a few basic points. I mean, okay. number one, they're using terrible data. 
Number two, the studies are actually quite weak and don't actually support the assertions that Levitz and Iglesias make about them. Number three, and this is probably most important, none of the studies that they cite, which are, are all flawed and weak even sort of methodologically, none of them actually measure whether, so most of the studies are actually like very short-term studies about flooding a particular area with police and then looking at what the very short-term effect of crime was, right? right. So what they don't measure actually is hey, when you flood a neighborhood police and arrest people and cage them and send them to prison and, and then separate them from their children, their children grow up without a parent, what are the long-term criminogenic effects on crime? So they don't even look at that, whereas some of the other broader literature actually tracks whether incarceration leads to more crime in the future and concludes that it does. But these short-term place-based studies don't even compare police to other alternatives. So these it would be totally consistent with these studies to flood a neighborhood with poets or artists or priests. They don't question whether the people flooding these neighborhoods need to have guns and need to be police officers, right? It could right. be after school programs, et cetera. And when you look at the other literature on the effectiveness of anti-poverty programs, community-based violence interruption, poetry, theater, music, art, athletic programs for kids, these all have like extremely high effectiveness rates even on a long-term basis. So there's nothing particularly about the police in any of these studies. And then I think the most disingenuous and kind of fraudulent thing that they do is they use these points to argue for larger police budgets and to argue against reducing the size and power of police. Mm. They actually use this to argue against replacing police with mental health first responders, things like that. But in fact, because only 4% of police time is spent on violent crime, 96% of the time is not, you could actually reduce police budgets by 90% and still double the time and attention police give to these very particular strategies that Iglesias and Levitz and others rely on, mm. the so-called hotspot policing or emergency responder policing stuff that they contend from these studies actually reduces crime. So what's fascinating is that even the studies that they rely on are entirely consistent with massively defunding extremely large and wasteful and kind of fraudulent police bureaucracy. We could double the amount of police time and attention spent on the tactics that they think score well in their studies and still reduce police by 90%. So in this summer of fear that I think we're seeing, you know, definitely a reactionary pushback to last year's uprisings, other related defund and abolitionist movements, the narrative is going to win, right? Like we can cite all the data we want, but there is a perception and that perception helped along, of course, by the media's obsession with when it leads is doing all of this kind of narrative work. And so this pushback, this backlash really against movements for justice, movements for less policing, movements for alternatives, movements for funding education and employment and the arts, things like that. That is really, I think, the media narrative, also the political narrative largely of the summer of 2021. What do you think, Alec, is a good way to kind of combat that? Yes, of course, we can point to data, we can say, okay, <laughs> police actually don't do shit about the stuff that you think you're scared of that probably isn't even out your front door, but, you know, down the cul-de-sac and then across town and then across the highway, et cetera, et cetera. But like that perception is definitely leading what we're hearing in this pushback. What would you say to kind of help along a more positive, less reactionary weaponized narrative? That's such a difficult question. I mean, I think there is a couple of components. There's a reason 
that people like Iglesias and Matt Taibbi more recently and Greenwald and Lee Fong and Eric Levitz and all these Substack writers, they never talk about the cost of policing. And I think what we saw last summer was an organic uprising or sort of mass set of thousands of uprisings all over the country because people saw very viscerally right in front of their faces in a way they couldn't ignore the incredible, extraordinary cost of the way that this country polices. And so there's a reason that those writers don't talk about the cost of policing, like surveillance, beatings, stabbings, family separation, sexual assaults, and domestic violence by police officers, which, by the way, the police don't even keep track of. And if they kept track of sexual assaults by police, it would totally change the crime rates in every major American city. That's how prevalent physical and sexual assaults are by police. Police don't even report those in when they give crime statistics. So these would entirely reverse the trends. I think we have to do a better job of getting people to understand the extraordinary cost of policing. Another of the big costs, perhaps the biggest in my mind, is that the more you fund police and give them surveillance technology and weaponry, you enable police to do what they have done for the last 140 years, which is to crush every movement for social and racial and gender justice that has ever occurred in this country. Every struggle for labor rights, every struggle for immigrant rights, every struggle for working class people and people who sort of want to make a better life that in a more equal society, mm -hmm. it's been the police that has infiltrated and brutally suppressed those movements. That is what police do. That is actually their primary function for the ruling class. And when you fund them more, you make it harder and harder to achieve all of the progressive social changes that even people like Taibbi and Iglesias and Fong claim that they want. What they don't understand is that the police have always been the tool that the ruling class uses to crush organizing by tenants, by workers, by women, for many, many years by people who are struggling in various formations in the queer movements. These are people who understand very, very deeply what the police are. And if we can change that narrative and get more and more people to understand, that's why I thought, for example, the, the videos last year of the NYPD crushing brutally the union picket line of the fruit and vegetable workers in New York City, asking for $1 a day extra during a pandemic to make sure people in New York had the fruit and vegetables they needed for their families to stay healthy. And NYPD crushed that revolt. Mm -hmm. And if you look back throughout history, in every decade of the 20th century, the police have brutally crushed labor organizing. So I think that one really important narrative for us to push back on is to give people a more clear understanding of what the police do. Let's look at how they spend their time. How much of their time is spent arresting people for being homeless, for low-level crimes like disorderly conduct or disobeying an order? One of the most common police arrests in this country is arresting people for driving on a suspended license when there are 11 million people who don't have licenses just because they're poor, because they can't pay fees and fines, not because they're bad drivers. That's actually the leading arrest in many jurisdictions in this country. So I think we need to give people a better sense of, of what police do. You bring up an excellent point, which is, forgive me, Lord, I cannot remember who said it on Twitter. I always feel bad not accrediting, but someone said something to the effect of, like, Occupy showed that Black Lives Matter has to precede Occupy because of the disruption of clubbing clearing out of Zuccotti Park, et cetera. And I thought that was sort of a good point. And one of the one piece of friction I, I think most urgently on that, not to steer from media criticism into political theory, is that I don't see, if you play the tape to the end, I don't see any scenario where we have meaningful or urgent climate change or climate justice or climate justice mitigation, which is why the effect of climate change. I don't see any scenario where that takes place without 
mass civil unrest by normal people. And I don't see any way in which that civil unrest can be meaningful when you have a well-funded, highly surveilled RoboCop-type police force. And that speaks to your point. And that is a, such an essential point because like, there's basically no meaningful social, urgent social issue that is not snuffed out by police from the IWW to present-day climate change to what have you, right? So in many ways, it's kind of the hub of all these movements like you talked about. But what I wanted to ask you is this idea of crime existing on a ledger and that when we talk about, which we discussed at the top of the show, when you talk about crime, quote-unquote crime is this isolated thing that happens on the street. Forget all the wage theft and environmental destruction and all the other examples you bring up. Even, even setting that aside, even if you sort of accept a very limited Matt Iglesias definition of crime, there's still this other side of the ledger of harm that's done with mass incarceration that no one ever fucking talks about. And this was one of the hardest things I did at the appeal when I had a podcast. I was like talking about the kind of Willie Horton moral hazard of crime coverage. Is that like, with the one exception of maybe when they see us, I can't think of very any pop culture depiction of the harm that that causes, the actual dehumanization, the violence of prison. Sexual assault, the beating, the years lost, the money lost, the fathers who are lost, the daughters who are lost, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. There is absolutely zero pop understanding of what those stakes are. And we talk about over-policing and sending away the bad guys as if it exists in some vacuum, as if it's just this kind of anodyne thing. I want you to talk about that other side of the ledger that never, ever, ever, ever gets talked about, right? If, if the local news let off every night with a story profiling a family that was broken up by someone in county, you know, one of the hundreds of thousands of people in county jail pre-trial, whether or not they didn't, they missed their son's first softball game or they didn't pay rent and their family was evicted, whatever it is, they lost their job, they dropped out of school. We would have a totally different concept of what is crime. So I want you to talk about that side of the ledger and how it's completely erased. That is a very loaded question, but go ahead. I think it's one of the most important questions that we can ask. And I want to just stop for a second and remember a few years ago when Trump was, was you know, separating families at the border, much of liberal America was outraged. They adopted this phrase, kids in cages, some people were outraged, protesting all over the place. And one thing that a lot of people didn't really fully appreciate at the time is that there are 3,163 local jails in this country where we separate children from their parents every single day. And the vast majority of people in those jails are separated from their children only because their parents can't pay a cash bail. How our legal system, police, prosecutors, judges, how our police sort of bureaucracy decides who should be with their children at home, who should be stuck in a cage of squalor and filth with no sunlight and exercise and fresh air and infectious disease and sexual assault. And so take something like the war on drugs. If you look at the costs of the war on drugs, not only has it been trillions of dollars over the last 40 years, but it caused over 50 million people to be caged, about 20 million people from marijuana possession alone, tens of millions of children separated from their parents, hundreds of millions of police stopping and searching and probing people's bodies, including millions of times that police probe people's anuses and genitals for drugs. Not only did we cost tens of millions of people their education, their homes, and their ability to make a living. We also caused tens of millions of square acres of pristine land throughout Latin America to be spray poisoned. We surveilled the communications of billions of people around the globe. We basically eradicated the privacy in the Fourth Amendment. I could keep going on, right? There's many, many consequences, but maybe the most profound one is that we sentenced human beings to hundreds of millions of years in cage. 
end of the day, after all of that, 40 years into the war on drugs, drug usage rates are higher in much of the country. Drug deaths are way higher than they used to be. Children are using dangerous drugs at higher rates. And all of this, mind you, while we legalize tobacco, which kills 450,000 human beings every single year, and alcohol, right? So there's, there's very particular political choices being made. But, but we engage in this war on drugs with all of those costs. And for all of the policing and prosecution and human caging, we actually made things worse. And we fundamentally need to get people to understand that police, cages, and coercion, and child and family separation are never going to make us safer as a society. Ever. You know, something we've seen lately in a number of different contexts, but I think the most recent one that I remember is a very, very localized poll that was conducted in Detroit. It was being touted as evidence to back the statement that communities suffering violence want more policing. They love cops and they want more cops. This has been making the rounds this idea that, sure, sure. Last year, there was the whole George Floyd protests and defund and yada, yada, yada. But now that we see the stats rise on quote-unquote crime, and it's reported on local news, it's on people's social media feeds, police are screaming about it, politicians are screaming about it, that actually when it comes down to it, that's just like a hippy-dippy fantasy. And, and really, the working class people who suffer from poverty and the violence caused by poverty actually aren't seeking alternatives. They just want more cops. What would you say to that? It's total nonsense. These polls that are supposedly relied on for this proposition are obviously, like all political polling by wealthy, powerful interests, the way that they ask the question, the way they frame the answers are designed to get to the result that they want. That's number one. Number two, you have to remember, our population has been heavily propagandized for multiple generations. These are very politicized issues, and for the last 40 years, they have been being lied to about what the police do, how police spend their time. They've been lied to about how unequal our society is. The costs of policing that you just asked me about have been completely hidden from people. So this is a, an area that, that there has been a tremendous propagandistic focus on, and so it's not surprising even that people's initial views on police are misinformed in many respects. But I think there's a deeper point. You actually look at the polling and you ask a different sort of question. What people are saying isn't that they want police. What people are saying is that they want safe places to live, good jobs, resources for their kids after school. They want to be in a community that thrives and flourishes. They want health care. They want to be healthy. They don't want to be poisoned. They don't want their water poisoned with lead. They don't want to be kicked out of their home by their landlord. They don't want to have their home foreclosed on by a bank. They don't want their wages stolen. And when you actually look at what people say they want, they want the things that the police are designed to prevent. And so what we need also is an organizing and political education that counters a lot of the propaganda that wealthy interests who own the media have spread through the last 40 years. And I think this is a very complicated, profound issue one of the ways in which the media sort of commonly does this is they ask very particular, very narrow, very specific polling questions, when if they asked a deeper sort of question, they'd get really different answers about what people's priorities are and what alternatives to policing people would actually prefer billions of dollars to be spent on than more people with guns and weapons and, and handcuffs. Yeah, because it's, I mean, look, if you run a protection racket, and if it's 1920 Chicago and I have Al Capone 
defending my business from other mafias and you ask me if I want to get rid of Al Capone, I'd say, well, no, because what, what the fuck else is there? Yeah. One of the things we've come across time and time again in this episode is that like we offer nothing else in return using even hackier Someone's drowning and you throw them a piece of barbed wire to grab onto. They're going to grab onto it. They don't have any other option. Police are the only option, the only way of adjudicating domestic violence, the only way of adjudicating car theft, the only way of adjudicating any of these stuff in some limited way, right? There's, there's nothing else to appeal to. You call 311, they're going to send a cop no matter what. Now, some people are trying to provide alternatives, changing, helping, social workers. It appears that the current consensus now in the Democratic Party under the Biden administration, under the auspices of electoral pragmatism, this is, you know, throw black people under the bus is always the cleverest thing you can come up with when you're trying to argue against any kind of left-wing reform. And so now you have this thing where Eric Adams was elected mayor in New York City. That is now becoming the sort of counter-narrative. Chris Cuomo and CNN said Will it, be elected mayor. Will be elected, sorry. It's a foregone conclusion, but yes, it has not happened yet. <laughs> Chris Cuomo, uh, James Carville was on CNN saying this. The New York Times wrote a puff piece on Eric Adams. The headline was... Why top Democrats are listening to Eric Adams right now? Some prominent Democrats think their party's nominee for mayor of New York offers a template for how to address issues of public safety. Now, this article four different times refers to, and I, knew, I know this is going to get under your skin. This is exactly what you're talking about. Four different times unironically refers to Eric Adams as the candidate of public safety. They refer to him as, quote, the most public safety-minded candidate in this primary, unquote. Now, this idea that being pro-police is, is interchangeable with public safety, I want you to comment on that. I want you to comment on the kind of, oh, look at Eric Adams. This is clearly showing that black and working class voters and black working class voters don't want to fund. They don't want any kind of this abolitionist. They want this nebulous reform that Eric Adams supposedly represents. But considering he was endorsed by the New York Post, we're going to go ahead and assume that that's all going to be bullshit. I want you to talk about the way Eric Adams has emerged as the kind of mascot for this liberal, carceral liberal reaction to George Floyd protests. Because, again, because he's black, because he can sort of represent this pro-cop minority that everybody, that all these elites want to proliquize. I want to talk about that and talk about the broader narrative about public safety as being interchangeable. I'm so glad you asked this question because I meant in your earlier question about how we counter this. To say that one of the most important things we need to do is to take back this definition of what constitutes public safety. When the New York Times uses the term public safety, not only are they using a very narrow term that doesn't include things like, are people dying of preventable diseases? What does it mean to have a place to live or an apartment without mold? What does it mean to have my child get treatment for her asthma? There's so much that is encompassed in the concept of safety that has been left out by the policing and punishment bureaucracy, they want to narrow in. Um, and the only thing they want to consider safety-related are the quote-unquote crimes committed by the poor. They don't see anything else as connected to safety. We need to take that back because true, safe, thriving, flourishing lives are, are about so much more. But I think the other point is the New York Times, when it says public safety, whose safety is it talking about? Who does the New York Times actually concerned? You know, are they concerned about water poisoned with lead in poor communities? Are they concerned about the safety of people at Rikers Island and the safety of people in prisons all across New York State and the safety of children who have had their mom or dad ripped away from them? They're not concerned with that. They have a very particular concept of safety, and it's one that's heavily determined by who owns the New York Times, who advertises in the New York Times, and the sort of social circles that New York Times reporters and editors hang out in. 
And this is a fundamental challenge for those of us who want to take on these media circles because a lot of these reporters just have not ever really experienced all of the various harms that our society inflicts on the poorest people on earth. And, and it's very hard to get them to see those things as safe and as connected to safety. So I personally think that these reporters are connecting policing to public safety because of all of the ways to further public safety, universal health care, massive investments in education and after school programs and theater and music and art and restorative justice and violence interruption programs run by community members. Of all of those ways, the only way to address safety that furthers the control and power of the ruling class is arming a bunch of people the ruling class controls with guns and cages and handcuffs. And so they choose that option and they connect that option with safety, not because it makes people safer in any kind of holistic sense of the word, but because it furthers other political goals that they have. Well, right, because public safety is actually just like, you know, well, who is constituting the quote unquote public in that definition? And it is those moneyed interests, like the friends of the reporters, or, or it is those politicians that are trying to absolutely destroy whatever momentum they have towards justice, expanded civil rights, and in, say, police funding, uh, because there's this like direct correlation, I think, that's made between. Safety equals money toward people with guns who are wearing uniforms. Like, there's this kind of, like, the idea, as you said, Alec, of expanding the definition of what public safety means. I think there's just, unfortunately, so far to go in our kind of, you know, collective consciousness in the public imagination because it has been so deliberately suppressed. And it, it kind of gets to... The last thing that I want to ask you, which is what are you working on at Civil Rights Corps that really speaks to this? And of course, the broader work that you are all doing. Tell us a bit about Civil Rights Corps and how people can get involved. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about our work. I mean, I, I think at a very high level for the last few years, we've been working on things like the cash bail system, the incredible network of pretrial human caging all over this country. We cage human beings pretrial at a rate that no society in recorded history of the modern world has ever done. About 500,000 human beings in jail cells every single night in this country just because they can't pay cash bail or are otherwise detained prior to their trial. We've also been doing a lot of work on the criminalization of poverty and the way in which much of the criminal punishment bureaucracy, the, actually the vast bulk of the cases that are processed by police and prosecutors and judges, are actually very low-level cases designed to generate revenue and designed to control people in their lives. So all over the country, we have lawsuits challenging, caging people just because they can't make payments, challenging the privatization of debt collection, challenging the taking away of people's driver's licenses just because they can't pay, challenging, as I mentioned, people being caged pretrial because they can't pay money bail. It, at a very high narrative level, to sort of loop it back to this discussion, I think we're, we're doing some really subversive stuff. So we're, we're saying to people, did you know that the way that these quote-unquote law enforcement, I use that term in quotes because they only enforce some laws against some people some of the time, but did you know that, that law enforcement, the way they decide who is in a cage and who is separated from their families, who has access to enough cash? And, and people are shocked by that. Ordinary people all over the country, they've never really thought about the bail system before. But once they learn about it, I think it subverts their sense that the system has any integrity because if it's making that important decision, but whether a child should be home with her mom and able to hug her mom on the basis of how much cash the mom has, how can they trust 
anything else the system is telling them? How do they trust all the myths the system is giving them if the system is doing that? And the same is true with the criminalization of poverty. If, if people are being jailed for profit just because they can't pay fines, how can we trust all of the other decisions that these people, these bureaucrats, are telling us are done for our own safety? Because the vast bulk of what they're doing has no conceivable relation to safety at all. So I think our work in, in some respects, all over the country, in local communities where we have partners, everywhere we go, we try, you know, we're not as good at this as we would like, but we try to work with local organizers and activists and people who are directly impacted to try in some way to change these narratives, to challenge them, to offer different voices and to tell the stories of the cost of the system so that people can have a really different understanding from what they're told in the mainstream media every single day. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to leave it. We've been speaking with Alec Karakatsanis, founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. Previously, Alec was a civil rights lawyer and public defender in the District of Columbia and state of Alabama and co-founder of the organization Equal Justice Under Law, the author of Usual Cruelty, and you can follow him on Twitter at Equality Alec. Alec, thank you so much again for joining us today on Citation. Thank you so much. It was so fun. Yeah, and when we say the media shapes these perceptions of crime and, and hypes crime, again, regardless of what the data says, before this recent alleged murder spike, crime spike, what have you, in media criticism, you rarely get data that shows that there is manipulation going on in such a stark way as you do with perceptions of crime versus actual crime. According to Pew, in 20 of the 24 Gallup surveys conducted between the year 1993 and 2020, at least 60% of U.S. adults have said there is more crime nationally than there was the year before, despite the general downward trend in national violent and property crime rates most of that period, according to... All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm just going to take a bit of a break here. Um, we have been sharing a podcast from uh, Citations Needed. This was episode 142, which came out on August 4th. Do have a lot of other info to get to on the show today. I'm going to take a bit of a music break, and then we'll be back with some more. Going up a song called Wandering Star by Polisa.
so much for listening yeah low energy today i want to share some upcoming events that are happening and if you happen to be listening right now live on thursday september 9th um tonight is the art auction it's the coalition on homelessness 21st art auction and there is a live auction happening tonight september 8th excuse me september 9th uh live at 7 30 p.m pacific time there's a uh, silent auction bidding which um, opens tonight at 5.30 p.m. There's also a silent auction bidding and which closes and raffles announced on September 23rd at 12 noon. And I thought there's also other ways you can also, um, if you can't make it tonight, also support um, the art auction. Take a look right now while we uh, <laughs> share this info. Yeah, just uh, there's a lot going on. And also I recognize that in the podcast that we just shared lots of information there as well all right so there's a link to the webinar where you can register to be part of the live auction tonight on thursday and i'm also going to see because i do recognize some folks may be listening to this afterwards i'm going to see about other ways you can support art. I mean, how great is that? You get to support people, you buy art. Um, it's a it's a win win. So yeah, live auction happening tonight. And let's see. Bidding closes at September twenty third at noon. Okay, so it opens tonight and it closes September twenty third at noon. So if you can't make it 
night, Thursday the 9th, you can still bid um, until September 23rd. I'm going to post a link to this info on our website, weeklyrev.org, where you can find the art auction info. And that's for no matter where you are in the world, um, you can help support. You can also make a donation and you can support the Coalition on Homelessness. So please do that. And uh, yeah. Also, if you type in Coalition on Homelessness uh, San Francisco, you should be able to find that info there before we put it up here on our website. Ooh, I'm tired. I'm also just dehydrated. It's also just a lot. It's a lot. Excuse me. Mm. That was very, very professional. <laughs> I also wanted to share another event that's happening. Um, this is happening from the EFF, which is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yeah? That's what they are, right? Um, yeah, Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF. They do a lot of work in terms of rights in regards to tech and ethics in tech. So next Wednesday, September 15th, from 9 p.m. to 5 p.m., there's going to be an online event called Fire and Fury, Throwing a Monkey Wrench at Big Tech. And um, this is by the Ethics in Technology Coalition. Ethics in Tech invites you to a full-day conference on the role big tech plays in surveillance, war, and peace. Ethics in Tech is a member of the EFF, a network of grassroots organizations across the country uh, committed to promoting digital rights. Please check out their event page to learn more. And then they say, uh, from the organizers, hear from activists and community leaders on what matters most as it relates to surveillance, war, and peace? Ethics and Tech brings you a full day of speakers, including privacy and peace activists, journals, journalists, and other experts in the field, all topped with some end-of-day stand-up comedy. Please join in. Tickets are available at the button below on a sliding scale. And if you use the promo code EFA, you can save 30% on tickets, and you can feel free to share the code on any form of communication, including social media. All right. So if you click on the link, our next event. Ooh, there's a video. I'm I'm clearly all about playing videos and uh, hearing other people's voices today. So let's share the screen. Oh, it's just a link to the website. It's not an actual video. <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm at. Free novel. Ethics in tech and lack thereof. Sleeping under the cell tower tells. Oh, cool. There's like a book about that too get a free download of it called um, ethics and tech and lack thereof cool so we'll also share a link to this on our website and yeah did want to just these events what else is there oh there's so much else that's going on too there's an article i'm not gonna get a chance to read but i did want to share the headline of and we'll post a link to it on our website oh i've got so many tabs open um, how to Give Land Back. This is from Shareable, and this just came out September 7th, 2021, by Aaron Fernando. So we'll share that. I also, ahead of time, tend to... Um, oh, goodness. Oh, there's so many articles. Uh, if you were to see this list here, there's at least 10 articles that I uh, haven't quite gotten to yet. There's also, I haven't mentioned it on the show too much, about Line 3 resistance, and, of course, the powers that be are trying to build another fucking pipeline line through replacement pipeline, uh, tar sands oil export. Um, it received final permit approval in November 2020, and they were going to finish construction in Minnesota. And so far, many people have been protesting this. And unfortunately, there, so far, there have been nearly 150 arrests of water protectors by the end of 2021. 
There's a lot of information on it um, at Unicorn Riot, um, including videos. And um, this is in St. Louis County, Minnesota. Um, yeah, let's see if we can get some audio from this as well. Never seems to be enough time to get to everything. Locking down today because I am descendant of colonizers. I am of European descent. My family line goes back to the Mayflower. Um, I'm the 13th generation in my family to be colonizing this land. I learned that over two years ago. It really made me have to reflect and have to think about where I fit in the scheme of the history of colonization that um, has never stopped. This is colonization. This is what it looks like. This is the extraction of natural resources. This is the genocide of indigenous people. And it's happening now in my lifetime, like it's been happening for hundreds of years. And we all have to reflect on what we're doing here and how much we're willing to sacrifice but actually how much we're willing to gain in order to do what's right. have uh, allies over here on this beautiful uh, trailer uh, 14 people locked down to it and then over here probably about a hundred yards down the road you have indigenous women femmes two-spirit and men locked to a car to try to stop uh, Enbridge workers from accessing the site leaving or entering now locked down to this van is rising up we're here our direct support indigenous people brown people did this bipoc people did this fuck yes indigenous led indigenous run this is the way to fucking do it start fucking right as indigenous people because we are the earth defending itself that's what people say i love that we are we're the earth defending itself this thrivance this is community thrivance when the land is under attack when the waters are under attack we fucking stand up and we fight back and there is joy in that this is yeah. I will not stand by and watch this shit happen. Just like everyone here will not stand by and watch this shit happen. It happened. We know what happened. We're in solidarity with indigenous people and struggles all over. Not just here in the so-called United States, not just in so-called Canada, but also in fucking Palestine. We're here to resist the continued genocide and enslavement of indigenous peoples. 
uh, and we're here to extend in solidarity with indigenous people as a mini disenfranchised person who's being affected and destroyed by the spreading of global capitalism. We are here to be good relatives, not only to the Anishinaabe or the people of this territory, but to the land and to the water. We are here with you. We are sending our love to all the front lines out there, all of the indigenous front lines that are holding it down. They took actions yesterday. It took actions today and will continue to take actions from here on forward because indigenous resistance does not die. We do not die. They are temporary. We are forever. Fuck line three. Fuck Enbridge. Fuck all corporate profit. Fuck capitalism. Fuck colonialism. Fuck Biden. Fuck all that settler colonial bullshit. This moment, we're recognizing the power that we have, our individual power, our collective power, and we're taking it back. We're no longer allowing the systems to tell us that uh, that they're going to allow the bureaucracy to push this pipeline through the community. That they're going to allow uh, the trafficking of indigenous women. Um, and that they're going to continue to put this ongoing you know, colonization um, through our homeland. will not stop fighting line three. They can continue to push this down people's throats here in Northern Minnesota, but we're not gonna tolerate this. It's done, we're drawing the line here. And we're gonna continue fighting, continuously fighting, even when it is all continuously buried. Line three will be shut down, no questions asked. I'm currently playing some videos from Unicorn Riot. You can find more info at unicornriot.ninja. And of course, this all ties in because the folks who are arresting the water projectors are cops. I'm going to play one more video and then I'll be wrapping up the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. For more info, go to weeklyrev.org. You can find ways to support the show, help spread the word, donate, etc. And check out previous episodes as well. Jill just um, showed up this morning. They're currently just right on the other side of this fence here, uh, putting the drill together, putting the drill pad together. Uh, this is the longest site of the entire uh, route uh, for them to go. I think it's about a quarter mile. They have to go underground. So we're thinking it might take them a few weeks, but it's taking them eight days for 50 day project. So.
you know, they, if they say it's a replacement, but it's not a replacement, they're just um, putting a bigger pipe in there and the old ones will rust decay and eventually break and spill. And there's never not been a company not to spill. So there's 22 crossings and that's a lot of chances for it to mess up. They already busted through one aquifer poisoning uh, and ruining it. So there's a lot of chances there for that to happen again. Water is life. That's why we're here. That's why we're standing here. Not only for ourselves, but for future generations and even the people who don't understand, we're here for them too. All right, so there's plenty of more videos here. Like there's a lot more. Um, so please do support um, all the folks, water protectors and also Unicorn Riot who has shared all this info. Um, and we have a link to the page for ours, nuclearref.org, and that'll be up later today. Um, okay, gonna play some music and then we'll be, we'll be out. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Um, hopefully this show was informative and uh, provided some ways that folks can show up and try to make the world a little bit more equitable. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are you on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dog. <laughs> Hello, hello. This is Mutiny Radio, broadcasting live from the Mission District of San Francisco, California. And it is time to ride the morning train.
The music of Max Roach begins today's journey on the morning train. That is the title selection to the album Survivors, recorded in 1984 with a string quartet. Max Roach here credited on multiple percussion set. The album Survivors. Next up, Frank Lowe. Thank you. 
This is the morning train on mutinyradio.fm in .sf, and I am your sole driver, J.D. Buell. That was Curtis Mayfield talking about hard times, a re-recording of that selection written for the album There's No Place Like America Today in 1975. That was re-recorded for inclusion on the compilation named Of All Time, which was released in 1990. Curtis Mayfield. Before that, on tenor saxophone, Frank Lowe from the album named Decision in Paradise, 
Frank Lowe there with Don Cherry, pocket trumpet, Grachon Moncour III on trombone, Jerry Allen piano, Charnette Moffat bass, and Charles Moffat on drums. The song was You Dig, Frank Lowe. Let's continue now with another selection from a CD I shared with you a few weeks ago by Da Cruz.
Just don't want to be lonely. That's the voice of Frankie Paul. And the track is Don't Want to Be. That is from a compilation named Strictly Underground, Reggae's Next Generation. Various tracks recorded in the early to mid-1990s. This album was released in 1996. Frankie Paul and Don't Want to Be. Before that... Da Cruz, the band named for vocalist Mariana Da Cruz. The album was named Sistema Subversiva, and the track we heard there was Vestida de Amor, Da Cruz. Now, as the morning train continues, we're going to go back again to new music 2016 this is the album leaf 